What's going on? Welcome into the Matt Bernier Show, part of the In The Money Media Network. My name is Matt Bernier. You can follow me on Twitter at Bernier underscore Matt. This is episode 16 of the revamped Matt Bernier Show for Tuesday, May the 26th, 2020. A little bit of a different week this week because of the Memorial Day Monday holiday. Uh, however you listen to this thing, thank you for doing so. A number of ways for you to find this podcast. If you listen audio only, you have Apple Podcasts, you have Android device, however you get your podcasts over there. You also have InTheMoneyPodcast.com where you can find this podcast, you can find all the other podcasts and all the other content that In The Money Media has to offer. Or if some of you still uh, check out the YouTube version of this where we have a nice little forum going, some nice commentary back and forth, ideas, thoughts, all that stuff, head on over to YouTube. In that search bar, type in the Matt Bernier Show. All you need to do is click on it. They're all there for you, all the archived ones. But if you do go over there, make sure you subscribe and the bell icon's lit up so you get a notification anytime anything new from In The Money Media has been uploaded. While you're over there, you might as well subscribe to my channel, Matt Bernier. Um, and for all of these things, please rate, review, and again, subscribe. It helps. It goes a long way. And if you're over on YouTube, thumbs up, thumbs down. Whichever way you want to go with that, that's up to you, but please offer that as well. For this week's pod, uh, we'll go over some big racing. It's nice that we're kind of back into the swing of things, can go over some races and dissect them, uh, highlight some highs, highlight some lows, and go on from there. So the Gamely, the Shoemaker, the Whittingham, and the Matt Win will be the four races I'll talk about here for this week's show. We will then transition into an update on the $100 challenge. We're a week into that, off to a bit of a slow start, but we'll dive into all the nuts and bolts there update the overall pick history, and dive into a Q&A to wrap things up. Uh, for those of you that have not seen it on Twitter yet, I've made mention uh, for what seems like forever now about where you can find the picks throughout the week as far as, you know, I used to be tweeting them out here and there. Head on over to racingpicks.com. That's where you'll be able to find all the picks that I end up putting out there. And occasionally, like a day like yesterday where I technically wasn't on for Monday, I still was tweeting some stuff out. Uh, I'll be there Wednesday through Sunday. Four days worth of written picks. Uh, the Saturdays will typically be video versions, just quick kind of two, three minute videos each. Uh, and then on Mondays and Tuesdays, Andrew Champagne is over there as well as far as selections and analysis is concerned. It's totally free. All you got to do, put in your email. I had somebody giving me a hard time on Twitter saying, oh, you know, you don't have to pay for it. All you got to do is put your email in. And it's all right there. It's not asking a lot. So if you want to find the selections that go along as far as the pick history is concerned, they're over there along with the analysis. And that's the most important piece, I think, if we're all trying to form wagers. You can find that over on racingpicks.com going forward. Uh, the $100 challenge, I try to tweet it as close to post time as possible. Um, but again, we'll dive into that in a bit. Let's first start off with some actual racing. Uh, the grade one gamely, a mile and an eighth on turf at Santa Anita on Memorial Day Monday. Won by Keeper of the Stars. Jonathan Wong gets a grade one victory. Congrats to the connections all around. A big day for Abel Cedillo on Monday. Uh, all around, this was a, you know, I thought it was a pretty a pretty straightforward race. I didn't think there was a ton of, of wildness that went into it. Sure, maybe the the odds for the top three finishers were a little bit surprising given that Etoile was not involved anywhere for Chad Brown. We'll talk about her in a bit. But uh, Keeper of the Stars gets the job done. She goes off at 7-1. to one. And, you know, I don't want to say that she was always looking like a like a superstar out there because she was under the whip rounding the far turn. I mean, she was really gassed pretty early on, but she went on and kept about her business and was able to prevail 97 buyer, 116 raw time form US rating. So the figs seem like they check out. And when you go through, and I'll talk about it a little bit more, I think the buyer is spot on just because it seems like this is a very rational and reasonable number for all of the horses in that sort of the top five to six to be running in a spot like this. The 97 buyer is uh, pairing up 97s now for Keeper of the Stars, so perhaps you do get a forward move. I, frankly, I'd be a little bit dubious trying to stretch her out anymore. She popped back to her left lead at the wire here. This is at a mile and an eighth. I wouldn't want to go any farther with her here. Um, keep her between this mile and a mile and an eighth, but I can say this about the whole lot here. I think there are some nice fillies and mares in this division on the West Coast. There's just, I just have a nagging suspicion that we just, that they're not quite the the A level. You know, if, if we're talking about some of the other big races, let's talk about, uh, in theory, Saratoga over the summer with a race like Diana. You know, is Keeper of the Stars a Diana type? Um, I, I don't know. There's a part of me that thinks that she's not. 
Numbers-wise, I mean, it's kind of a hungry group right now, just overall coast-to-coast, coast, so maybe you can make the argument that she fits in just as well as anyone else, but you have to assume Chad's got something in his back pocket that he's going to unveil at some point. Uh, maybe Etoile just needed a race under her belt, and we'll get into the ride in a bit. Um, at Keeper of the Stars, I'm not knocking her. I think she's a really talented horse. Again, the connection's done a great job with her. I just, I do wonder what, you know, is this the ceiling? And if it is, look, it's a great one. No one's going to sit here and sneeze about that. But um, I wonder if when the waters get deeper, and if I'm thinking Breeders' Cup time, where does she fit? I don't think she can go out to a mile and three-eighths or whatever they ran the Philly and Mare Turf at Keeneland at. Um, I also don't think she's a miler at that level anyway for a race like the Breeders' Cup or some of these other spots. So I'll be very interested to see what the connections want to do with her and where they position her going forward. Uh, Mucho Unusual, you could make an argument, was probably the best horse in the race. Um, if you don't believe that, that's fine. Um, I just, boy, the, the move that she made rounding the far turn between horses, I thought was really an eye-catching move. And then, unfortunately for her in the connections, I believe it was Umberto Rispoli riding. Let me double check. Yes. He had to wait, wait, wait. She stacked up behind horses. She finally is able to angle out. And at that point, the run is there, but it's not quite as potent as what it seemed like it was going to be. I thought it was a big effort from her to finish third. She, again, I'm not going to fault anyone or argue with anyone that suggests that she was actually the best horse in the race. And with clean run on that far turn, she can kind of sustain that bid and go on and get the job done. She's one that, from a distance standpoint, I'm not terribly concerned about a mile and a quarter. I don't know about a flat mile. Um, I don't think she's incapable of it, but I, I do wonder, you know, certain horses that kick at a mile does not necessarily sustain at a mile and an eighth or a mile and a quarter, and vice versa. The kick at a mile and a quarter, sure, you may have a big, big finish or a mile and an eighth in this case, but does it necessarily translate to a mile? It's not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. So, uh, mucho, mucho unusual, uh, you know, obviously not the cleanest of trips. She's one I've already thrown into my horse watch. Uh, Bodicita, I tweeted out, I liked her. She's one. She's a classic example to me of a horse that you go through the PPs, and yes, she's getting a class test. There was no question about it. She was facing the best horses she'd ever faced. But the way that she had kicked in each of her past two starts, particularly when she hit the straight, I thought was really eye-catching and strong enough to look at a group like this and say, maybe Chad's filly is just going to be a monster. But outside of her, who am I terrified of? There wasn't one horse in here that looked like a complete standout. So why not take a shot with a horse that's going to be a price that has the finish, and I've talked about it ad nauseum, in turf racing, if you don't have a late kick, you don't have anything. You need to have some kind of finish, whether you're a tactical type, whether you're a speed type, or whether you're a deep closer. You need to have some finish. If you can't finish on turf, you are not going to win these races, plain and simple. So for her to have that big kick that she had showcased in those other races, albeit going shorter at a flat mile against N1X and N2X company, I wanted to give her a shot in here. She flew home. I mean, she that, that late kick, it wasn't dulled going from the mile to a mile and an eighth, which was part of the, the piece that I was a little bit concerned about. I didn't know if it would translate. It, in fact, did. Um, you know, you take a look at some of the incremental splits. Uh, final quarter, well, I shouldn't say final quarter because it's a mile and eighth, but you get what I'm saying. If we're breaking it up into quarters and then you have that tack on that extra furlong at the end, her final quarter in here, she went 23.37. That's the only one faster at that point was Etoile, who was coming from even farther back. And the final eighth of a mile, she came home in 11.18, and that is the fastest final late in the entire group. So I thought it was a big effort from Bodicita. She's a horse I wouldn't mind seeing maybe a little bit more ground. I could also see them trying to cut her back to a mile, but I feel like I'm going to say the same thing about her as I would Keeper of the Stars or even Mucho Unusual. I just don't know where they stack up against the best of the best from the East Coast and what where you go going forward. What race are we are we thinking about here? You know, as we near sort of the summer months. Well, I don't know what the the ultimate spot will be for some of these horses and where they'll end up. Uh, the last horse I'll talk about with this race is Etoile. I saw a number of people discussing how far back she was and what kind of ride she got from Joel Rosario. The only thing I can say is, uh, you know, there's no doubt about it. She was just miles behind everyone. I don't know if that's her natural running style. Keep in mind, this is her first start since October of last year in France, where typically the paces are much more pedestrian. Um, it's not as though she didn't come with some sort of a kick. I mean, the internal sort of the, the second half of an eight furlong race, again, tacking on that extra furlong at the end, uh, excuse me, of a nine furlong race, 
I, you know, she ran. It's not like she was just kind of walking out there. She went 23-34, 22-98 for that fourth quarter. And then she flattened out in that final eighth. And I wonder if it's a combination of things where, look, was it the best of rides? No, but I don't think it was a complete and utter disaster. I mean, if this is what her running style is, you want to take her back and produce that one run. You know, she kind of did that. And it, although she flattened a little bit at the end and she didn't kick the way that a Bodicita did, it's not as though she wasn't running. And I wonder if it's one of those instances where maybe she just felt the effects of the layoff combined with maybe being too far back early on. The pace was honest enough, 23 and 147 and 111 for three quarters. You know, it wasn't blistering, but it also wasn't slow. You know, I there's a part of me that can look at this one of two ways and say, was it a disappointing effort? Yeah, probably. But I don't think it was as bad as some people have made it out to be. And I also don't know that I want to sit here and just say, oh, it was a bad ride from Rosario. Maybe he was riding to instruction. I have no idea. First time, it's always the danger with the Europeans coming over here. Until you see them in the United States, it, I don't want to say it's guesswork, but you're, you know, especially on, on, especially on the West Coast. You know, we, I feel like we see a number of these horses for someone like Chad Brown come from Europe and really make hay in New York or, you know, Chicago at Arlington. The Southern California, it's just, it's a different kind of, I don't know. I, you know, I'm just kind of rambling here at this point. All I'm saying is I don't, I'm not going to sit here and just draw a line through her and say she's no good right now. I, I just, maybe it was a combination of things. Maybe it was the layoff. Perhaps it was being too far back early on. Uh, you know, maybe she's not quite as good as some people hope she would be. Who knows? It's too early to tell for me. And I think the, the worst thing anyone could do, I'm not sitting here and saying go better at even money next time out or two to one. But I'm also suggesting let's wait and see what her next spot is. If she comes right back in a big, big graded stakes race, I think it's a vote of confidence from Chad saying, you know what, whatever the case was in California, we still believe in her. If all of a sudden they kind of take a step back and I don't even know where she would end up, then maybe you want to look at it a little bit more sort of in depth and say, eh, maybe something's not right here. But all around, I, I thought it was, you know, it was a disappointing effort, but I don't think it was one of those where I'm ready to just sit here and say she can't run and she'll never be anything. So uh, do with that what you will. Let me know what your thoughts are beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. Now, let's transition into the Breeders' Cup winning you're in for the Breeders' Cup mile that was run earlier on Monday. That was the grade one Shoemaker mile. Grade one Shoemaker Mile, a win and you're in for the Breeders' Cup Mile. Chad Brown with a strong, strong team, a duo going out to the West Coast and without parole and Raging Bull. Raging Bull is the one that ultimately gets the job done very, very impressively. You want to talk about visually checking the box? I mean, he just looked like a million dollars out there. The final time was fast. The way he moved was impressive. Uh, there's not a ton to knock about this effort from Raging Bull. 105 buyer speed figure, 122 raw Timeform US rating. For what it's worth, all the fractions throughout Timeform US has color-coded red, which, I mean, if you were just watching the race or you've seen a replay of it, it, that seems pretty clear that they were cooking with gas on the front end. I believe the half was in 44 and 3. Um, that's as fast as you're going to see a, a mile sort of half split in a, a half split in a mile race. That's the right way that I should be saying that. Um, he just, he never really looked like a loser when the pace materialized and Joel Rosario was very, very confident with him, saved some ground and did what you like to see when the opportunity is afforded to you with a turf horse. And that's the thing for me. I've, I've always spoken about it. I would rather have clean run and be able to continue the momentum than the alternative, which unfortunately for Rad Ortiz and Chad Brown and everyone else involved with Without Parole, you got to see firsthand. We'll get to him in a moment. Raging Bull, though, I, just the way that he moved throughout, he never looked like a loser. And I'll be honest, this is a horse that I've always, always thought was better going longer. And I, I understand he didn't win a race last year as a four-year-old and you know, maybe some people would like to say he's just not good enough at those distances. I don't believe that. Uh, I, I think he, I maintain, I think there's a real scenario that he's best at a mile and an eighth, maybe a mile and a quarter. And I just don't know if at a mile without a wicked pace like this, does he have enough time to get the engine cooking? Um, 
you know, I guess theoretically with a slower pace, he's a little bit closer to the front end, and he probably still is able to kick on the way that he did. And, like, nobody was within a, a, you know, shouting distance of him. He blew the doors off the field. So, and it was a good field. So maybe that's one of those where you look at it and you say, you know, it doesn't really matter. Maybe he just, you know, that I've I've spoken about the natural maturation of horses now. He's a five-year-old. He's fully developed. We get to see what he's fully capable of. Maybe this is it. Maybe just he's going to be an absolute superstar going a mile going forward. And again, Chad Brown knows a hell of a lot more than I do about what horses want to do, what they don't want to do, that sort of thing. I've always thought him better at nine furlongs or ten furlongs. I see a race like this. I immediately think Arlington Million, when and if that race is run this year. Um, but in a Daily Racing Form article, you know, Chad was quoted saying that the focus is going to be on mile races for, for Raging Bull this year. So we'll see what happens. But boy, he, he, he couldn't have looked any better winning the Shoemaker Mile. And he will, he's got his ticket. He's in to the Breeders' Cup Mile at Keeneland at the beginning of November coming up this year. So uh, we'll see what we get from Raging Bull going forward without parole. I've seen so many people on Twitter bashing the ride from Arad Ortiz Jr., and I, I couldn't disagree with it more. I saw, I believe Marcus Hirsch uh, tweeted earlier on Monday that, you know, he went back and watched it, and he goes, you know, the the effort from without parole it had nothing to do with the ride, and I couldn't agree more. I, I It's one of those things that you're just damned if you do, damned if you don't. Everyone wants to save ground in turf races, and when you're able to find a little seam here or there and you can squeeze through and everything works, you're hailed as a hero, but when you ride to instruction or you ride the way that most trainers like, which again is to save ground, get them covered up, and then you know come with your run, when you can't find, ground, you can't find any kind of a seam or a hole, then all of a sudden you become the butt of the jokes. I think people need to reassess the way that that goes that's not the rider's fault and I guess there are some instances where you know maybe some indecision or whatever it may be but I'm not going to say that's what the problem was in this race on Monday Arad just had nowhere to go he had a ton of horse he's had a beautiful trip until it was the perfect trip until it wasn't you know I've I use that phrase often with these sort of races where you're sitting that beautiful sort of pocket trip, or in this instance, he's three or four lengths off of a wicked pace, saving ground throughout. Everything's working great. And then he just couldn't, he, there was nowhere to go. And I can't, you can't blame the rider for that. I mean, it's, it's a wall in front of him. And if he could have found a seam, he would have taken it. But there just, there wasn't one for him until it was far too late. And the fact that without parole, even at that point, so late, I don't think it was probably till the eighth pole, there was a little bit of a hole for him to be able to still have enough juice to shoot through that. I just, you know, he's a really interesting horse. I think he's been, you know, I don't know what happened in the race uh, at the Pegasus World Cup. He was really, really impressive in his first start in ages in the Breeders' Cup mile last year. I liked him that day. Loved the way that he ran. Again, I don't know what happened in the Pegasus. And in this spot here, I just think it was not rider error. It wasn't anything. It was just, you were just unlucky. I don't know what else you want to do with that. And I think if you're pinning blame on someone that you're looking at it the wrong way. This is not one of those instances where the the ride made the difference. It was just just bad racing luck. It is what it is. I wonder if he's the one still though of the two if you gave me a choice heads up going for the rest of the year, which one of the Chad Milers, you know, whatever you want to call them, kind of middle distance types, which one of them do you want raging bull or without parole? I think I'm inclined to say without parole. Because he doesn't, he is not entirely dependent on the pace situation. I mean, he was what, probably four lengths ahead of Raging Bull. And there's a part of me that believes if he's able to extricate himself and find some sort of a, a seam, that he at least makes it close with Raging Bull. And, you know, kind of going back to the top piece, without that wicked pace, what does Raging Bull's run look like? Is it is it too late? Is it is it too little, too late at that point. Whereas a horse like without parole, if he has that four length head start, or I guess with a slower pace, maybe it's only two or three lengths, but I know he's still going to kick. Is that the difference maker in, in, you know, races going forward? Who knows? That's just my feeling on things, watching the replays and seeing what these horses have done throughout their careers. Uh, Next shares, I know some folks are, you know, saying that the start really affected him. I I mean, look, next shares is what he is. He's a horse that's going to come from dead last. He's a really nice horse. I'm not trying to knock him, but to suggest that being pinched back and shuffled to the rear at the beginning is why he didn't win a race like this or threaten a horse like Raging Bull, 
I mean, he was going to come from that point anyway. So unless you think something happened early on when he did get pinched and slammed between, you know, whether it knocked the wind out of him for a bit or whatever it was, which I, I mean, it didn't look that way. Um, I, I can't really use that as an excuse. He's a horse that comes from dead last anyway. You're, you're going to get that more often than not with a horse like this. Uh, and the last two that I'll touch on here, uh, River Boyne and War of Will. I'm not going to touch on the disqualification of War of Will. You know, whatever. It is what it is. With River Boyne and War of Will, though, for them to both be as close to that hot pace as they were and still finish the way that they did, I thought it was a really encouraging effort from both of them, particularly War of Will, because we haven't seen him since the Breeders' Cup Classic of last year. So his first start on turf since the end of his two-year-old campaign. And he, you know, again, both of them were kind of cooked in this hot duel. I thought they both ran really, really well. And, and River Boyne, he's a horse that I've never been the most, you know, I've never been a giant, giant fan of his, but I'm starting to come around on him because he just he just shows up with his race time and time again. Sometimes good enough, sometimes it's not, but you very unlikely to get a complete dud from him. Now, does that mean that he's a Breeders' Cup mile type? I, you know, I I, I don't know. I'm not going to go into that piece just yet. I can say the same for War of Will. Does it mean that he's a Breeders' Cup mile type? I have no idea. But I do think there are races for both of them going forward with a little bit more favorable pace situations, and maybe you can get away from a couple of these chats. But look, take nothing away from the big one, Raging Bull. He looks fantastic out there. Yes, he had a crazy pace to run into, but he really never looked like a loser at any point. Unlucky for without parole, but a big effort from Raging Bull. He gets the job done in the grade one Shoemaker Mile, 105 Buyer, 122. Timeform US rating, he has his tickets punched for the Breeders' Cup Mile at Keeneland in November. Now, the Whittingham going to breeze through the Charlie Whittingham as well as the Matt Wynn because I don't have a heck of a lot to add. The Whittingham, I know there was a disqualification of Rock Emperor. You know, I, I, I suppose, look, I've seen a heck of a lot worse in general, not ultimately lead to any kind of a change as opposed to what we saw there. I don't disagree that there was definitely some leaning, but, you know, neither here nor there. United wins the race. His tactical ability is always going to give him the opportunity to win races like this. The pace wasn't electric by any stretch, uh, but he is the one that prevails 101 buyer, 119 raw time form U.S. rating. I think he fits well in some of those races out on the West Coast. I don't know that I view him as a superstar, but he's honest as the day is long. He'll show up. He'll give you what he's got. Sometimes good enough. Sometimes it's not. Rock Emperor, perhaps a little bit pace compromised, but I don't know that I want to blame I don't want to use that as an excuse. I felt like he should have won this race if he was what I thought he was. Um, you know, maybe with a little bit more pace, he's, he's one that can turn the tables next time out. But all around, it is what it is. United gets the job done. The Matt Wynn is one that may have more long-term, well, I shouldn't say long-term, more immediate ramifications as far as three-year-olds are concerned. And again, the three-year-olds are the glory, the glamour division that we have here in the United States. Maxfield makes his return to the races and... I need to go full disclosure here. I have not gone through and watched all the races from Churchill Downs on Saturday. Timeform US had the dirt surface as slightly closer friendly. And Maxfield did come from a little bit off of it after being prominent early on into the first turn between horses. Jose was able to sort of, I don't want to say he got out of the position, but he was in a little bit tight. The other horses were able to go on with it a little bit, although the pace wasn't all that fast. And Maxfield on the far turn just sort of slowly got the engine cooking. The thing that I was most taken by with this performance was that it felt like he just started running at the end of the race. And he was still able to beat a couple of nice horses in New York traffic and pneumatic. And he earned very, very solid, at the very least solid, if not, you could probably say strong speed figures at this point in the year for a horse making his first start since October of last year. A 95 buyer, 117 raw time form US rating, pace adjusted to 115. Again, I, I haven't gone back and watched all the tape from Churchill on Saturday. All I'll say is, uh, even if it's a slight, let's say that he had the track in his favor, which I, again, I, I can't definitively say one way or the other right now. As someone that has never, never been for or against the horse, he looks good. You know, I don't have any knocks, but I also wasn't one of the people fawning over him leading into the Breeders' Cup last year. Uh, I thought he was awesome. I thought he was really, really good. And now you're hearing the connections, kicking the tires perhaps on the Belmont Stakes, kicking the tires perhaps on a race like the Haskell. 
this three-year-old campaign this year, more than any other year, is going to be fascinating to watch. However, it all shakes out. But with the Belmont being at a mile and an eighth, the one-turn mile and an eighth, you know, the timing of everything being entirely different, it just it's going to be really, really interesting to see where all the connections choose to go, what races they value over others, uh, and how they get to the first Saturday in September for the Kentucky Derby. I know many people have brought up that oh, the Derby's lost some of its some of its lust, luster for this year, and uh, it's still the Kentucky Derby. I mean, I don't care that it's run in September as opposed to May. It's still the Kentucky Derby. It's still the race that Joe Blow public knows about. And as much as we would like others to know about other big races that we have, if you ask any random person on the street corner, what's can you name a horse race? They'd say the Kentucky Derby. Everyone wants to win the Derby. And that it's going to be how do they get these three-year-olds to that position? And then presumably get them ready for a race like the Breeders' Cup Classic. But first things first, they want to get to the Derby and they want to win the Derby. And I just, it's going to be really interesting to see how that, how all these horses sort of weave their way to that sort of date, that goal, that first Saturday in September. I thought Maxfield was really, really strong in his return to the races. Uh, and it'll be fascinating to see where he shows up again next. I'm going to quickly touch on the $100 challenge, knowing that I'm going to circle back to it in the QA segment. $100 challenge, for those of you that may have missed last week or you're new to the show, whatever the case may be, the idea was to start with a number that enough of us, you know, obviously hard times and $100 can mean different things to different people. But it wasn't saying we're starting with $2,000 and also wasn't saying we're starting with $10. Bucks. $100, the idea was to turn it over, the bankroll, $2,000. To turn it over that many times, to get to that number, churn two grand. And that would be sort of the end date. The good news there is there was no real, you know, it didn't have to be done by a certain point or whatever the case may be. If for some reason I miss a week and I can't make any picks, it doesn't really change the end game. I'm going to bet 4% of the bankroll at a time. So as the, the bankroll increases or decreases, the wager amounts will change, you know, vary accordingly. Uh, and that was basically it. I, I also... I've made it clear that uh, I can lock in some odds from time to time. The update, as far as the numbers are concerned, it really could not have started off any worse for me. <laughs> from a pick standpoint, uh, I have made 14 wagers. I have won exactly one of them. Uh, and these are all only win bets. So no underneath sort of stuff. Only win bets. One for 14. It's just how you want to start one of these things. Just ice cold. Frigid. Had a couple of horses run decent enough, but only one for 14. The bankroll from the original $100 is now at $75.50. The churn thus far, meaning toward that $2,000 goal, is at $47. So I've put $47 through the window. For those of you that are curious, what is $47 of $2,000, given that $2,000 is the end game? Uh, that would be 2.35%. So we only got, you know, what, uh, 97 and change percent left to go of this thing. Uh, it's been a rocky start, to say the least. I've had a couple of horses run really well at big prices, couldn't quite get there. But as I said early on when I started the pick history, which I will update here in the next segment, the idea of I'm someone that I'm not going to panic about this. Yeah, it's a terrible start, but good news is everything is about averages, and I think it's all going to level out. I'm typically, I should be anyway, in that sort of 22% number for the win rate, although this year has been a little bit lighter than that. Uh, but the the ROIs have been positive. I know no, no reason to believe that things won't turn around here. So um, we just keep plugging along and there'll be an amendment to this $100 challenge. But again, I'll get to that in the Q&A segment. First things first, let's update the pick history and then we'll dive into Q&A. Pick history, question and answer. Pick history sample size is now up to 144, going back to the beginning of when this started in middle of February, whatever it was. Uh, and again, if you're curious where all of the picks for the pick history are now living, you can find those over on racingpicks.com. It's entirely free. You're going to get the analysis of three or four a day from me, Wednesday through Sunday. All you got to do is put your email in. Piece of cake. And then they're also going to show you all the great offers that are out there for different ADWs and things like that. You want to sign up with so-and-so? Go right ahead. It's all right there. It shows you what's good, what's not so good. But if you're looking for the analysis and the picks that are used for this pick history, 
Racingpicks.com, totally free. Just put your email in. 144 is the sample size. I'd said at the beginning of this, I expected the win strike rate to be around 22%. I expected the win play show number to be around 55%. Oddly enough, they are both 3% under. So 19% winners, 52% in the money. The good news, as disappointed as I am that both of those are a little bit subpar, uh, both numbers are in the black right now. So out of a sample size of 144 so far on the win end, the ROI is $2.20 for every $2 wagered. That's a 10% to the good sort of return. And then win play show, it's $2.06. That is a 3% to the good sort of number. Uh, from a win standpoint, you would have wagered $288. You've had $318.20 returned. Uh, win play show, you would have wagered $864. You would have had $886.40 sent back your way. So I can't complain too, too much with the numbers both resulting in positive, you know, returns on investment. But if I want to get nitpicky, both the win and the win play show numbers are, are lower than they should be. So I uh, definitely need to work on that. Those numbers are now, though, and is, you know, going back to the beginning when we were talking about the idea of 100 is the sort of threshold to start drawing conclusions from a sample size standpoint. As the sample obviously gets larger, the percentages are going to change less and less. And I let's just call a spade a spade. I've been on a rather cold streak here uh, for the past couple of weeks. So hopefully things are going to turn around here as the weather continues to, to heat up. Maybe I'll kind of turn things around as well. So that's where things stand with the pick history. Question and answer segment. Got four of them for this week. A couple of thoughts, a couple of questions, whatever the case may be. I welcome them all. I love that Beneath the Video Player on YouTube, it has turned into a little forum just for this. Another 36 comments last week. More is better. More and more, because then this gives me more things to talk about, makes me think about some things a little bit differently than maybe I normally would have. All that jazz. And then all of you seem to be going back and forth with one another too. So please, more and more. As great as Twitter is, it can turn into a bit of a cesspool from time to time. And yes, I'm over there. You can follow me at Bernie or underscore Matt. You can send me questions and things over there. But it just gets lost in the shuffle of a number of things, especially when, you know, on a crazy day like a Saturday or whatever it is. This piece here beneath the video player on YouTube, I mean, I can see this a lot clearer than I can over on Twitter. So I like that that's, that's what this sort of piece has turned into. Uh, let's start off with Carol Schiffler. Carol has a question. I have a question that is a, a bit less numbers driven. When you were watching the horses in the paddock before a race, is there anything visual that you see that might make you back off a horse that on paper looks great or the other way around? You see a horse that you might be on the fence about from a numbers perspective, but something about the way he looks in the paddock makes you willing to take a shot on that day. Carol, thank you for the question. Uh, I'm certainly, there are some people that are exceptional at identifying positive and negative things as far as horse flesh are concerned. I think at the top of the list, and I don't mean this as a knock to anyone else that does it, but I think the top of the list is Maggie Wolfendale for Naira. She, she's as good as anyone. Seeing when a horse looks good, when a horse doesn't look so good, and pointing out different things, a turf hoof, this, that, and the other. I am not someone that is all that strong. I didn't grow up around horses. Um, I, I don't. I can tell you when a horse looks amazing. But I have to be honest with you, I, when I say that, I don't know that I'm really breaking any news. I mean, I, anyone that is uninformed like myself about horse flesh, when a horse walks by, I can be like, wow, you know, this horse, ears are up on its toes, coat is nice and shiny, you know, the, the groom, they, they, did, they braided up the mane, like the horse looks amazing. I, I have a difficult time differentiating between, I can't split hairs on the high end of things. What I can identify, and kind of to your question, Carol, I will only go the other way. And it's bitten me in the past sometimes, and it's worked to my advantage sometimes. I will only get off or bet less on a horse if I see something that seems like a bit of an alarm, a bit of a red flag. Most notably, the most obvious one that there is. If the horse is typically nice and calm, and for whatever reason, is a complete washed-out mess in the paddock. And, you know, and I'm not, I'm not talking about a, you know, an August afternoon at Saratoga where it's 95 and humid, and everybody is washed out like that, human and equine. 
But if it's, let's just say it's a, a, a normal day at Belmont Park and the horse has typically got a really nice disposition and all of a sudden the horse is sweating up a storm, all lathered up on the neck, you've got, you know, sweat between the legs, you name it, all that kind of stuff. I'll at least think twice, especially if it was going to be any kind of, you know, fair amount of money. And, you know, full disclosure, for me, typically, if it's not in a contest like the BCBC or any other live money event, typically a really, really large bet for me to win would be like 100 bucks. A solid win bet would be like 50 And then if I'm just playing around, probably in that 20 range, again, I'm not, I'm not somebody that's betting, you know, millions of dollars out there. So if I were thinking all along about betting, let's say $100 on a horse at four or five to one, and I saw the horse, you know, the odds are reasonably close to what I was expecting, but the horse looks like they've seen a ghost, eh, probably not going to be 100 anymore. Maybe it's 25, maybe it's 50. Depends how I'm going, depends how I'm feeling. But I'm only going to go the other way because I know that I don't have enough of an eye to identify when horses look better than usual or the, those sort of, you know, minute little observations that someone like Maggie or an Acacia Courtney or a Gabby Gaudette or anyone like that is capable of identifying. You know who else is really good about the, the visual piece? Um, and I'm not just saying this because I work along with those boys, but Peter Thomas Fornital, PTF is really good at sort of being able to identify in the paddock. And uh, if you've never been to Saratoga, the paddock bar, PTF is usually set up in his own little private area there. He's got tables and all sorts of stuff. He's, you know, he's a king. He's really good at being able to sit there in the paddock and say, oof, you know, I don't know about this. Or or on the other side of the coin, this horse looks like a million dollars today. Feeling good, looks good. You know, maybe we want to reconsider at seven or eight to one. If we don't have the horse on a ticket, maybe we add whatever the case may be. I'm not someone that's good enough to know heads or tails about that. I only know the obvious times when the horse looks like a complete mess. And I, you know, I'll throttle back a little bit. I'm not saying I'll totally jump off. Now, having said that, there are those instances where I would, really, really strongly consider jumping off. And they've, you know, again, it's worked in the past and sometimes it hasn't. I remember it was actually on my birthday a number of years ago. And had he won, I would have earned an NHCC. It was in one of the free contests. I'm trying to remember what year it was. Successful Dan was running in the Whitney at Saratoga. Wise Dan's older brother, who was every, I don't want to piss anybody off. I think he was very, very comparable, let's say, as far as ability was concerned with Wise Dan. The problem was successful Dan couldn't get on the racetrack. Uh, he flipped over on the way in the, the walking path to the paddock for the Whitney, and he still ran a giant race to finish second. You know, I can sit here pretty confidently and say if the horse doesn't go, you know what, over tea kettle, he, he probably wins a race like that because God knows how much energy he's expended and you know freaked out in an instance like that. I just... Those are the kind of things where it's Captain Obvious, but that's, that's I, I'm not going to try to do something I'm not comfortable with or I'm not suited for. You know, the last thing I want to do is get on, whether it's TV, if I'm NBC or, you know, if we can get something to work with uh, any of these other places, TVG, whomever it is. The last thing I want to do is sit there and say something that I, if I don't know or I don't feel confident saying it and having any kind of knowledge base about it, I don't want to be just spreading misinformation. There's too much of that going on right now these days. I don't know what – I'm only going to stick to the things that I'm comfortable with. And, and you know, to your point, so it's a little less numbers driven. I understand that. And unfortunately for me, I don't want to say I'm a one-trick pony, but I am very much numbers and visual as far as the race itself is concerned. I, can, I feel like I'm as good as anyone about identifying certain trips or certain horses that project to do things better down the road, doing something differently. But as far as the paddock observations, um, unfortunately, I'm not someone that's super strong about that kind of thing. So I try to stay away from it. I try not to let it get too much into my head uh, unless there's something very, very obvious. So hopefully that's a, a way to answer your question, Carol. Thanks for the question in the comment. Uh, let's go to <laughs> what I'm going to consider the, um, the comment of the week. Uh, and it's just a quick one from Ben Fitz. I was asking how you, how everyone goes about handicapping a race. What's your process? And a number of you have laid it all out. It's been, been very fun to, to read. And I thank you all for doing so. 
benefits. This is his process. This is how I go through a race. One, buy a program. Two, close my eyes. Three, point to a horse. Sometimes it works. And you know what? That's the beautiful thing about the game. I can sit there and go to Saratoga or go to any track with friends that don't know, you know, they're not deep into it. They're not big handicappers or whatever it is, but they can sit there and say, I like the name of this horse or I like the number four. So I'm going to bet the number four in all the races. And you know what? Is it the is it likely to, to land you the most profit long term? No. But I hate the people that sit there and sort of chastise those that do that. If that's what you want to do, it's your money. Bet however you want. You don't, there, there's no, just making sure I'm not screwing up the audio again like I did last week. There's no, you know, who am I to sit there and tell you what to do with your money? All I can do is offer advice and suggestions. And if you want to use those going forward, do so. And it's not just me. It's anybody else that has platforms like this, podcasts or books or television or radio or whatever it is. But I'm not gonna, I'm not one of these people that says, oh, because it's not a positive, you know, positive EV that you're a dummy. No, whatever, man. It's not not my problem. If you bet however you want to bet. If you want to do the place pick hall, I've used that as the example before. Go right ahead. I'm not gonna sit here and say you're a dummy. Do whatever you want. It's your money. Have fun with it. As long as you're having fun. It's all that matters. And look, if you want to get more serious about it, that's a different story. And we can kind of pivot to a different direction. But if you're just someone that wants to go out there and have have a few pops in the backyard at Saratoga or Belmont with your buddies, go right ahead. Do whatever you got to do. So, Ben Fitz, I wish you well as far as your handicapping process is concerned. Uh, Bobby Root. Bobby Root has a uh, comment about Brad Cox and his trainee, Owendale. Uh, I really hope that Brad Cox and the connections keep Owen Dale at these one-turn configurations. He's by into mischief, so he's unlikely to get better targeting longer races like the Breeders' Cup Classic. He's way more likely to get favorable setups in one-turn races like the Met Mile, the Forgo, Cigar Mile, for instance. I think you've talked about this before with a horse like Frosted. Uh, I have, Bobby, yeah. And thank you for the comment. So the interesting thing, and I, I believe this, there are certain horses that are better at one turn as opposed to two. And vice versa. The the danger I have with a horse like Owendale, I don't disagree that maybe the one turn setup is going to be a little bit more advantageous for him, but I would I would hesitate to use Saturday's race as the reasoning, because you're right. He's probably he's more likely to get setups like he did on Saturday, going one turn seven eighths, one turn mile, whatever it is as opposed to doing that, going a mile and a quarter in the Classic or, you know, the Jockey Club Gold Cup or any of these types. The problem is the pace was very, very swift in that race on Saturday afternoon. Let me try to pull up some PPs here. And I, I take a look at the chart and, you know, 22 and 3, 45 and 3, 9 and 4 for three quarters. I know Everfast and Silverdust were reasonably close to the front. Silverdust, by the way, is just a complete nut in the gate. He was act, acting a fool again before the game started. Um, I fear what happens, you know, he came from last effectively, Owendale. I look at this field and it, let's just use the, the Met Mile as uh, just the random example of the grade one, one-turn mile. Or the Cigar Mile, that works too. I look at this field and I say, mm, I don't know that I see a lot of Met Mile types in here. And I'm not including Owendale. I'm just saying the body, I'm saying the rest of the field. And my question for anyone, not just Bobby, but, but anyone else, and I'm curious what thoughts are, a horse like Owendale, you can come from last with a hot pace against this caliber. Can you do that against better horses going one turn? Let's just use a horse like Improbable, who many people are very, very high on. It's sort of those middle distances. Could Owendale do that against Improbable? With, let's say, not, instead of 45 and 3, maybe it's 46 and 1. May not sound like a giant difference, but that's three lengths. It is a, it's a considerably slower pace. I'm, I just, I don't know where Owendale is as far as, what's his ceiling? Because even in this race, he earned a 99 buyer. I mean, he... He's earned three 99s, a 98, a 97. I don't know. I know he's been gone since the end of November, but I, I'm just, I'm curious about what his ceiling is. And when you bring up Frosted, the reason that the Frosted piece jumps off the page to me is just because he, 
I mean, he decimated the field. It, it wasn't necessarily, I think, I, you may be right. And I, I kind of, I'm, I'm okay leaning towards your side here with that. Maybe one-turn races are better for Owendale. I just don't know that he gets markedly better at the one-turn as opposed to a horse who, look, and again, it's probably not fair to compare him to Frost because Frost was a really exceptional animal. But I don't, I don't know. Frosted's game went from a, let's say, an A minus going two turns to an A plus plus going one. If Owendale's game goes from a B going two turns, does he even get to a B plus going one turn? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I find this a difficult race to use as the example. Everfast and Silver Dust to me are a far cry from the horses he's likely to have to run like this against in the bigger races. And whether they run him in the one-turn races or not, I'm not opposed to that. I would just be very hesitant to take him at a short price with a running style like this if he's going to be coming from way out of it against better horses. I do understand the point, though, and the thought that that maybe these races are going to set up a little bit better for him than the mile and a quarter types. You know, maybe then even the mile and an eighths, whether it's a you know a Whitney or a mile and a quarter in the Pacific Classic at Del Mar or the Jockey Club or obviously the Breeders' Cup Classic. So I do take that point into consideration. You may be right. I just don't know that I'm seeing a tremendous difference from a numbers standpoint between his one turn and two turn races as opposed to perhaps you know because. He happened to be the horse that I've brought up a number of times. You brought him up here as the example of Frosted. Frosted's game, it was it was almost like, you know, I can do the other things really, really well, but I can do this exceptionally. Just my thoughts. Let me know beneath the video player on YouTube. And we'll wrap things up. Going back to the $100 challenge and someone bringing up what I think is a, uh, a valid you know, a valid uh, question. And maybe we, we need to make an amendment to the $100 challenge. This is from Sean O'Brien. A little bit of a lengthy piece, but I will, I will read it so we can lay it all out for you. Uh, Sean says, from my math on the $100 challenge, 4% wagering falls flat when you drop below $50 for a $2 minimum bet like win, play, show. Granted, that takes 17 straight losses to get down that far, so I think you'll be okay. <laughs> May have spoke too soon there, Sean, with the way that I've been cruising, one for 14. The end goal, though, of turning it over 20 times equates to just hoping to have an ROI that is right around minus 5%. So in relative terms, you're looking to have a game of betting that just beats double zero roulette's expected return, which is minus 5.26. To each their own, but I don't know if that's ambitious enough. On one hand, for those that gamble with non-scared money slash fun money, it would be comparing the enjoyment you get from sitting at a roulette table and watching the ball lands to handicapping horses. If you're watching this video, I'm almost certain we all prefer the latter. So it's not that it's a bad thing, but I think there should be a side goal for ROI. Playing to just not lose 5% of your bets feels a bit lackluster, doesn't it? I'm not trying to shame those that are fine with just enjoying the thrill of betting, even if it means you're expecting a loss in the end. I go to the casinos and play knowing the long-term odds, but I have fun doing it and it's worth the risk. Personally, my own, and again to each their own, is to beat the stock market by year's end, above 10 to 12% yearly ROI. It's modest, yes, but it makes me justify the opportunity cost of just putting my money there and just enjoying watching the races without betting on them. I'm cursed with a degree in economics, so I tend to think this way. Anything above it is all gravy. I don't do a hard stop if I hit it. From the tracking you've done already, you do a very good job analyzing your results. I'm just curious if you do have a target minimum ROI. Wow, sorry for the incredibly long comment. I guess I could have just asked that in the end. Sean, I, I appreciate you laying it out, not just for me, but also for anyone else that read it and then me here on this piece here. I, I definitely take that into consideration. The idea that perhaps the goal is not lofty enough, and look, I'm saying this already down, what, to 24%. But I do, I think there may be something to that where, sure, the churn, churn, churn is good, but you are effectively, you know, it, it, it's not a lofty goal. I think the 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 terms of it, I think the $2,000 churn is is easier said than done. I don't think that should go overlooked. 
But having said that, I do understand where you're coming from. And perhaps that's the amendment to this. Maybe it's not only do we need to churn the $100 to $2,000. Do we also need an end goal? So let's say I do get to the point where the two grand has been churned. But the bank, but we're not at a positive number, whatever that number may be. Maybe it just continues until we get to that point or I go bust. That is if I even get the churn, because again, we've started ice cold. Um, I'm curious what other people have to think. I'm leaning toward taking this on and saying, you know what? You laid out the 10 to 12% yearly ROI. Maybe the $100 challenge needs to be tweaked. And it becomes, we need to burn through the 2000 but also it does not end until we are either plus 10% or we're bust. We're gone. That's my lean right now. I won't officially sort of say anything until next week's pod, but let me know beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. I think it's a good point that Sean brings up. Maybe this goal is not lofty enough. Again, I don't think, uh, you know, churning 2,000 from 100 is not a small feat, but I do understand that maybe the goal is not high enough. Maybe the bar is not set high enough. So maybe that's the tweak. The churn, we got to get through 2,000. We turn that $100 over 20 times, but we also need to be positive 10%. And if we're doing that, I'm already in a hole, but that's neither here nor there. Maybe that's what this goal ends up being. Maybe that's what the $100 challenge turns into. Let me know beneath the video player on YouTube or directly on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. Thank you all for the questions in the comments. Please continue with this because not only does it give us a nice segment here on the pod each week, but it's a nice forum for everybody to just kind of spitball back and forth and say, you know what? I This is how I do things. This is the way I see things. I like this horse. You like this horse. There have been a number of horses I haven't even discussed here on the pod that people bring up that they saw and they're interested in and they're in their horse watch or their stable mail. And I, I think it's worthwhile for everyone to go through and take a look and see. Maybe it's a race that you missed. Maybe it's something that, you know, maybe you didn't look at it that way. And now you go back and you watch the tape and maybe you look at it with different eyes. You know, uh, I think it's just a very, very useful exercise for all of us. Get those thoughts and opinions out there. Nothing wrong with that. However, you've been listening to this thing. Thank you for doing so. Again, from an audio standpoint, you have Apple Podcasts. You have however the, the Android piece works. You have InTheMoneyPodcast.com where you can find this podcast as well as all the other content that In The Money Media has to offer. If you listen on YouTube, like I know so many of you still do, uh, thank you for doing so. Please subscribe. Make sure your bell icon's lit up so you get a notification anytime anything new is uploaded to the In The Money page. You need a thumbs up, thumbs down, whatever it may be. And again, fire away with those comments beneath. Um, please rate, review, and subscribe if you're over on any of the podcast platforms, the apps with the phones and things of that nature. And you can follow me again on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. Ollie will be back next Monday with another episode of this program going over who knows what, updating the $100 challenge, the pick history, and anything else exciting that happens between now and then. If you have any other thoughts, let me know in the usual places. Until next Monday, this has been episode 16 of the Matt Bernier Show. Good luck however you play, whatever you play, wherever you play.